Hey guys, Andrew here, and a quick announcement before we get started. Need to let you know that Friday, December 30th, the last Friday of this year, is going to mark the last weekly published episode of the ECF podcast, at least for a while. Looking at 2017 and beyond and some of the things I personally want to do, I want to do with e-commerce fuel and in the e-commerce space in general, made the really difficult decision that at least for a while to focus on some other areas. I love the podcast. I love doing it, but putting out a weekly show and trying to do it at a level that meets my quality standards is, it takes a lot of time and you can't do everything well. (laughs) So it's something where I'm going to get into all the details on that last episode on the 30th, what to expect, what kind of some of those plans are that I have and I, my team has for e-commerce fuel and for some things in the space. But just wanted, wanted to give you a heads up. I really appreciate you listening, making the show part of your day and sticking with myself and the guests and the team over the year. And just want to give you a heads up so it's not an abrupt sayonara on the 30th of December. So more details to come. Please join me on that last episode so I can fill you in on the details. But I uh, just wanted to let you know. All right, let's get into today's show. Welcome to the e-commerce fuel podcast, the show dedicated to helping high six and seven figure entrepreneurs build amazing online companies and incredible lives. I'm your host and fellow e-commerce entrepreneur, Andrew Uderi. Hey guys, Andrew here and welcome to the e-commerce fuel podcast. Thanks so much for joining me on the show. And today I'm joined by a returned guest, Taylor Pearson, the author of The End of Jobs, as well as a very interesting blog over at taylorpearson.me. I reached out to Taylor to talk about a post he wrote recently about reaching your potential. It's titled The Subtle Art of Reaching Your Potential. And he had some really interesting ideas about how to think about what you should spend your time on, what areas to develop, which ones are less important to develop. So we get into that. We talk about the platform medium, not directly related to e-commerce per se, but most people listening, you're probably familiar with Medium. It's it's a publishing and reading platform online. It has really gotten popular the last, last year or so and is one of my favorite places to discover and read content. So we talk about that and potentially how it can be used if you want to leverage that platform. And finally, we talk about reading. You know, Taylor's a prolific reader, so he shares some of his on how do you read more effectively, how do you make time for it, and how do you distill what you learn into actionable insights. So hope you enjoy it. I always love having Taylor on the show, and we'll go ahead and dive right in. Taylor, I think the catalyst for me wanting to have you back on the show was a post you wrote on your blog, uh, The Subtle Art of Reaching Your Potential. And I thought it was exceptionally good and would love to maybe kick things off there. You can kind of tell from the title, how do you maximize for you know, getting the most out of your life and your business. And specifically, kind of the question that you teed it up very nicely. You said, when your time is limited, how do you decide what strengths to maximize and what weaknesses to mitigate in order to reach your potential? So what what's the answer to that? Because I think it's an interesting question. So the genesis of the the post was this, kind of these two conflicting popular theories about how to learn. So one is the kind of 80-20 principle, which is been popularized by guys like Tim Ferriss and Richard Koch kind of saying, you know, to any skill you want to learn, you can get 80% of the way there and 20% of the way time. You you can, you know, very efficiently learn this skill. And then kind of like the Malcolm Gladwell 10,000 hour story, which is like, if you want to get really good at something, if you want to get really great world class at something, it takes a huge amount of time and a huge amount of practice and a huge amount of focus and resources. And so I had you know, all these different skills. And I was thinking, how do you, when do you apply the 80-20? When do you apply the 10,000 hours? Is one of them just wrong and the other one is the right? And kind of the conclusion I've come to over time and what I was trying to work out in the writing of 
the article is that this idea of don't let the good be the enemy of the great is kind of at the heart of it. The what it takes to go from zero to good at a skill is completely different than what it takes to go from good to great. And that you can go from zero to good by this 80-20 that, you know, in a relatively small amount of time or with a relatively limited amount of resources, you can get 80% of the way there. But if you want to get really world class at something, then it's going to take you, you know, 10, 20, 30 times as much time and energy invested to get that last 20%. Have you heard of the, the idea of a T-shaped entrepreneur, the T-shaped marketer in terms that you've, you know, the top of the T is you have a decent understanding of a lot of different areas, but you go very deep, the vertical part of the T in one area. Is that kind of the, the thing that in the article that you kind of advocate for probably the best approach to really being able to, to achieve your potential? I really like the paint drip metaphor. This was something someone shared with me in the last year or so. But the T-shaped thing was always kind of useful to me. And what I realized I didn't like about it was it implies that there's only one thing you go deep on. And that really wasn't true of me, that there was multiple things I was interested enough in to go deeper on. And so you kind of imagine like dragging a paintbrush across the top of a wall and the drips start to fall down from where you drag the paintbrush, sometimes the drip just goes down, you know, a little bit, maybe an inch. And sometimes all of a sudden it goes down a foot and sometimes it goes down three foot. So you have this kind of broad 80, 20 band across the top of these are all the things I'm competent at. These are the things that are mission critical to whatever I'm working on. So if you're building a business, like you have to be competent at accounting and finance. You don't have to be world class at it, but you have to, you know, make sure you have positive cash flow. Like you have to have the very basics. You have to have the basics of marketing. You have to have the basics of whatever your product is. And then you have to pick a few things within that that you become really, really exceptional at. Let's just for the sake of argument, say that you decide you, maybe you could do a couple become world class, but let's say you just want to do one. Obviously that, you know, it helps having kind of 80, 20 some of the the core competencies, the important things to have at perspective, finance, marketing, those things. But in terms of when you go deep on something, so you blend that that high level knowledge with something where you really are, are world class, how do you know what to invest that 10,000 hours in? And how do you know you've picked correctly? Do you have any kind of framework or ideas on, on how you go about that? Because that's, it's a huge commitment. <laughs> right. And I think the cheeky answer is like, you don't know, you never know for sure, right? That's kind of the game. But the heuristic that I found really helpful is look for things which seem easy to you that seem hard to other people. So what are the things that you do, which your internal sense of is, this is, you know, maybe it's not the easiest thing, but this is, you know, I'm pretty decent at this where other people look at it and they're like, you know, how do you do that? You know, like, so one of those things for me was, writing. I would have people come up and ask me, how do you write so much? And I was like, I don't I mean, you just sit down and you start piping the words. And it was just kind of uh, something that was natural to me. I had a, uh, I actually got this from Mark Andreessen, but he, I think he calls it the anti-productivity productivity day. So, you know, set a day where you don't have anything on your schedule and you say, I'm going to be productive, but I, I just, whatever I wake up and I feel like working on is what I'm going to work on. And for me, invariably, I would wake up and I would usually write a blog post. Like it was almost always the thing I would do, uh, you know, 90% of times on that day. And so relative to other people, that seemed, it seemed to be easier for me than it was for others. Interesting. One thing that I, I liked about your post as well is, is you, you quoted Scott Adams, who's the creator of Dilbert. And he kind of broke it down in success into two different categories, two different formulas, I guess you could say is one, you can be world-class at something. You can be in the top 1% of your field, which as we've mentioned is takes a tremendous amount of effort. But the alternative is you can be, let's say top 25% in two or, or more of your field. So he used the example, you know, hey, 
there's not a lot of people. There's a lot of people who are funny, and I'm kind of funny. I'm you know decently funny, but you know not world class. And there's a lot of people who can draw, and I can draw, but you know I'm not top notch. But you put that combination together, you take those two circles and you, the overlap of where people who can draw well, who are funny, and also under, understand business, and you're world class on that. And would you make the argument that it's it's easier to become world class at becoming you know, in the top 25% or two or three different areas as opposed to just sticking to one purely? I think it's certainly less competitive because less people, it's less legible, so to speak. It's like less obvious that that's a path. It's very obvious that if you become, you know, the best in the world, the violin, that the New York Philharmonic will let you play for them. Whereas, you know, if, if you'd asked Scott Adams 30 years before he started writing Dilbert, like, do you think it would be helpful if you were moderately funny, moderately good at drawing and had a moderately well understanding of business culture? He'd be like, no, like what a useless, like what a useless <laughs> combination of things. But of course, in retrospect, it's pretty clear that that's a super valuable thing. So I think the thing I actually thought of while I was reading it was uh, Steve Jobs' commencement speech at Stanford, where he kind of says, you know, you can only connect the dots looking backwards, right? Like he took this calligraphy, he got very into calligraphy and typography and typesetting in college for no particular reason other than that it was interesting to him. And then all of a sudden that became the differentiating feature for Apple and the Macintosh that all of a sudden it had this beautiful typesetting and typography. But that wasn't obvious going in, right? Like it was only obvious afterwards looking back. So maybe kind of trying to wrap this all up in a nice bow for store owners. You've got a background in e-commerce, even though you're, uh, I know you're, you're much more focused on the writing these days. How should I, someone with a, let's say, you know, a, a six figure, seven figure business, how should they think about applying this to their own store and especially their own personal development? Any thoughts? I think the conclusion I've kind of come to is just to be a little bit more dilettante and a little more kind of exploratory. That like the thing that looking to me at guys like Steve Jobs and Scott Adams that is in common is it's this connection of seemingly random skill sets, right? Like if you were Steve Jobs had woken up at you know 20 years old or whenever he dropped out of college and said, I want to start a computer company, it wouldn't have been a very obvious thing to go study typesetting. That wouldn't have been if he'd asked the 10 people in the world that, you know, doing the best at computer companies or that were on that track what to do, none of them would have said, you know, go start typesetting or typography. And I'm sure if, you know, Scott Adams had asked cartoonists, you know, they probably would have said, you know, go work in a corporation for 15 years. So you understand corporate culture. And so it seems to me that, that looking at these people, these things are usually they find something that is interesting to them for, for no other reason that they find it interesting. And then eventually you kind of start to put together a few of those skills and all of a sudden it forms this unique combination that maybe you couldn't have predicted. I want to shift gears a little bit and talk about talk about Medium, the the publishing and blogging platform. And I know they've been around for a while and I remember seeing them, I don't know, maybe two, three years ago, but it wasn't until, I don't know, six months ago maybe where I realized, oh my goodness, I'm reading like 30, 40, 50% of the content I'm consuming is on Medium. Why do you think it's become so popular and what does it do really, really well that has allowed it to see such great adoption. It seems like a big part of it. The two parts that they seem to really excel at are reading experience and discovery. That if you just look at the actual just design of the site is really pleasant. Like the way they set their type, the way they design it, it's very minimalist. Uh, and it's just a much more enjoyable reading experience, especially when you look at like most other online media sites, because they're driven by ads, they have to make money from ads, all the ads clutter up the page, whereas, you know, because Medium, that's not their business model, at least that's not their business model right now, they can have this really minimalist, nice feeling 
page. And also they've got kind of like the cool annotation feature where you can go in and you can highlight things you find interesting or you can see what the most popular highlight is in the story. So it feels like a little more collaborative and a little more community based than just reading an article on, say, like the New York Times. And then it also seems to be the discovery seems to be quite good. Like if I just scroll through my medium feed and I haven't really done anything to curate it, it's all pretty relevant stuff to me. Like that, whatever the algorithm or the the method they have for like presenting that feed to you, it seems to be very highly relevant. Yeah, their emails. I'm I'm uh, ruthless with deleting and archiving emails, and even if I don't like the the subject house so much, I almost always open my medium emails because usually without fail, there's at least a couple articles I had to had to read later. Yeah. How does it work? I mean, you obviously have your blog, taylorpearson.me, and you publish on Medium as well. So how does it work with that combination? Is it designed to be kind of just another channel? And if so, how does it work from SEO content? Do you do one of those rel uh, canonical links or, or tags rather back to your blog? I don't understand how that works. Can you help me help me uh, kind of put the pieces together there? So I'm still figuring it out, but I can tell you what I've figured out so far. So I use Medium purely as like a distribution channel. So everything that I put up on Medium is something that appeared on my site originally. And I'm just trying to reach people who, you know, they don't come to my site, but they do scroll through their feed in Medium. And so it's possible that I can reach them there. And so I think part of that, like I said, is the, the discovery is pretty good. Like it recommends, the people it recommends the articles to are quite good. In terms of the SEO, I just figured out Medium does have a tool. You can use their API you can sync it up with your RSS feed to automatically import with the rel canonical tag so that it tracks that going forward. I haven't done that to this point. My understanding of the SEO is that as long as you wait some period of time, Google knows which page went live first. And so they kind of have a way of, okay, this is where it's from. The other thing you can do is if you just at the bottom of the article or somewhere in the article, you say, this article was originally published at myurl.com slash post that tells Google, oh, okay, this is, this is where it was originally published. So I, I syndicate stuff out to other sites like business insider and entrepreneur and those kind of places. And I do the same thing. So it just says, you know, this article was originally published at taylorpearson.me and it links back to the original article. And that, from my understanding, that's a strong enough signal to Google that, Hey, this is the original when it comes to rankings. And, and you mentioned a feed. I don't use the feed again. I just use the email, but you can go in. I'm guessing I can follow you. I can follow anyone I like. And then Medium will create almost a Twitter style feed based on who I'm following with all their content plus recommendations. Is that how that works? It does. And the other thing that's really powerful about Medium is they have these things called publications. So you could, for example, start a publication about, you know, the e-commerce store owner magazine. And then you could bring in different people that contribute articles to Medium and you could reach out and say, hey, I really liked your article about shopping carts. Do you want to add it to my publication? And so from the contributor perspective, they get access to everyone else that's subscribed to your publication. And from the publication perspective, you get more content in there and then people can follow publications. And that that seems to be the way things are going because publications, one of the features is they let you do these newsletters, which effectively lets you use email with your medium subscribers. So if you have a publication with uh, 100,000 followers, you can email those people as if it were your email list, at least for now. And we'll see. I don't know how long they'll keep that feature, but that's where a lot of the traction I've gotten it from is people will pick up my post in their publications. They'll send a request saying, can we republish this for you? And then that reaches everyone inside that's already following their publication. Interesting. Have you seen, you know, for people, especially people listening right now, e-commerce entrepreneurs, probably not as much, you know, 
maybe writing with a more business slant, more of a, sometimes a technical slant, uh, at least I'll speak for myself. Does that kind of content do well on Medium? Or is it more, I guess maybe let me rephrase it. Is there a certain type of content that does well on Medium that you should be thinking about? Maybe if I'm not doing this, maybe it's not the best platform. So it seems to be, it started and it was kind of, as you would predict, very startup tech heavy. So it was very, it just kind of read like the best of Silicon Valley. And it seems like it's now kind of transitioning more towards the type of content you'd expect to do well on a large internet site, almost like Vox and BuzzFeed. Like if you scroll through the kind of editor's picks or top stuff on Medium and the post on Vox, it's sort of like a tech version of Vox or a tech version of BuzzFeed. So you know, I'm not sure the technical stuff would do particularly well there. Any tips for people who are going to start, start writing on there or repurposing on there? So the publications has been the biggest breakthrough I've made. That If you have, say, three to five publications that are relevant to whatever your subject area is and you could submit your articles to them, that's been the way I've gotten the most traction out of it. And the other thing that's nice about it and what I do with it is you can republish content. And so what I actually do is I have I'm maybe 100 posts on my site. They're kind of my whole blog archives. And so I'll just upload a new one every day. And then when I get to the end of it, I'll just start deleting from the end and then adding them back to the beginning because it's a feed, right? So just like Twitter, like you can reshare mm. the same thing on Twitter every month and no one's going to complain because, you know, most people don't see it. It just kind of goes through the feed. I just kind of continually run through the archives. Sounds like we're going to have an Edgar for medium here before long. Yeah, there probably will be. <laughs> Dale, you you read a ridiculous amount. I think you know, I don't know how many books you read a year, but it's it's a dizzying number. What are some of your suggestions for helping people get more reading done? Because I think everyone, not everyone, but most people, want to read more. Personally, I love it when I can get into a two or three week flow where I'm reading every night, and I really look forward to it. But uh, it seems like life and business gets in the way a lot. How do you prioritize actually making that happen? I think the biggest thing for me, which is also the least actionable of, of all my suggestions is I just, re- whenever I do it, whenever I read more, it really, everything else just seems to get better. Like it seems to have such big downstream impacts on me. I notice I just have like way more ideas in my business. If I'm ever like working on a problem, I just can't come up with any ideas. If I'll just go read two books on it, all of a sudden I've got like so many ideas about it that, you know, banging my head against the computer for a week would have been much less efficient than <laughs> if I'd just gone and read the two books. And I, I've, de- I've definitely tried both strategies. So I think just realizing it's important and then getting more deliberate about it. And then some of the ways I've gotten deliberate about it, one is just scheduling it. So first thing in the morning, last thing at night tend to be the times so I can actually do it. Whenever I schedule it kind of the middle of the day, inevitably, like you said, email creeps into it or another meeting creeps into it or something comes up. So I try to read for at least half an hour in the morning. And I found if you do half an hour a day, that adds up to around 24 books a year. So it adds up and it's pretty significant for half an hour in the morning. I also am really picky about only reading things that I find interesting. So I quit a lot of books you know, people recommend stuff to me. It just doesn't look interesting to me. I won't read it. And I, I typically read 10 to 20 books at the same time. I just have like a big stack and I'll just pick up whichever one is most interesting to me that day. So it never really feels like a slog. It's usually something I'm interested in. Audiobooks, I've been on Audible for around two years. I really like kind of biographies, anything with narrative. So either fiction or biographies, I find are really good for Audible and I'll use those when I'm commuting or when I'm cooking or kind of anything where I have, I'm using my hands, but I'm not really doing any kind of cognitive 
processing. And then my last one is I use Goodreads to track all my reading. And Goodreads is uh, kind of the social network for books. It's, I'm sure, the least popular social network ever. Um, <laughs> but they do have some like pretty cool feet. You can, you can use them as kind of like a to-read list. So I just keep the app on my phone. When people suggest a book to me, I'll type it into Goodreads and I can add it. I like it for choosing books because you can actually sort by different features. I used to just keep like a huge Evernote list of all the books. But like in Goodreads, you can sort by what has the most reviews or what's the oldest. Or you can actually search, you know, I want to read a book about marketing. And you can see, okay, what are the books people have recommended to me that are, you know, in the genre marketing? And I think the other thing with Goodreads that helps is kind of the classic Drucker adage that anything measured improves. So if I if I, if I just track it, like inevitably I read more. One problem I have with reading is retention and being able to apply it. So you mentioned Audible, and I love Audible, but I had to stop listening to business books on Audible because I'd listen to a business book. And then a month later... I mean, I could remember maybe, you know, I could give you the, the nutshell high level, but all of the things that as I was listening to, I was like, oh, that's brilliant. I need to do this. I need to do that. would just kind of float off into space. So for business books, I always read them either on, a, you know, with a Kindle app and then go through and, you know, highlight like crazy. And then at the end, one thing I'm trying to do is to kind of go back through and take out, you know, the, the top dozen takeaways and then have a list of those because otherwise I, nothing happens and, and I'm not very good at applying those. So I have a particularly bad memory, so that might be the problem. But do you have a system for processing books, implementing them, and applying them into your life? Or do you just kind of rely on just being able to connect the dots in your memory over time? I'm not super systematic about it. Uh, So I would say I I also mostly forget what I've read. I think part of my philosophy of reading, so to speak, is it's kind of like travel in the sense of it shapes you in ways you can't consciously articulate. Like I can kind of point to how my thinking has shaped over the course of, you know, my reading life over the last five years, but I can't really say like, oh, this book made me think this and this book made me think this. Like, you know, if you take someone and you take them to 10 different countries and you bring them back, inevitably they're less prejudiced. And it's like hard to explain why exactly that is. It's just, you kind of see the vastness of human experience and you see all the things going on. I do with business books. I don't like Audible either for business books. I read them either Kindle or on paper. And then if it's something actionable, like I want to start doing it right away, I just use Evernote. So Evernote has a a screenshot feature where you can actually take a picture and I'll just take a picture. I'll underline it or highlight it in Kindle or in paper. And I'll just take a picture and like add that to kind of a list of notes. And then I'll process those notes once a week. So any action items like change the meeting structure to ask this question or whatever, those immediately just get actioned. But everything else, if it's not something I can apply right away, I just kind of highlight it and think, oh, that's interesting. And then if I come back to do some sort of project relevant to that, I'll scroll through my highlights. So it would be an incomplete discussion on reading without asking you the obligatory, what books do you recommend question? And you know these don't have to be the three definitive top books of all time, according to Taylor Pearson. But what would uh, three of your top must-read books for entrepreneurs be? So one for me is definitely anti-fragile, which you'll either hate or love. It seems like no one falls in between. But that really, it's by Nassim Taleb and very much shaped my thinking in terms of what is risk really? What does risk really mean? And how how is the time we're living in now different from a hundred years ago that the actual kind of the structure of our lives, the structure of the world really is meaningfully different. And how do you think about that in a more intelligent way? That was one. Another one that I recommend a lot that I feel like is vastly underappreciated or underread is uh, principles by Ray Dalio. And this is, it's actually just a PDF. If you just Google principles by Ray Dalio, you can pull up the PDF 
And Dalio is, he runs a hedge fund called Bridgewater out of Connecticut. And I think to my knowledge, it's, they had like 25 years in a row where they were like the most successful. They beat Alpha by the most, the highest percentage, or I don't understand the hedge fund industry very well, obviously, but a very, very successful hedge fund. And so these are basic, it's basically his personal philosophy and company culture document. And it's like 120 pages and it'll take you a month to read it. It's so dense. I'll probably read that. I reread it at least once a year. And that's one of my favorite books. I, I just go print it out. It's worth getting printed out so you can actually kind of like take notes and highlight in it. And then The War of Art is also kind of one of my classic favorites that I probably reread every year or two. Taylor, we'll want to do a, a lightning round with you here. One that we do are starting to do at least with all of our guests and they, uh, they answer the same question. So feel free to just give short, punchy answers, or if you want to expand a little bit, that's fine too. But I'm going to dive into those. How much money is enough? What would be your number? So I say, I would say 10 million for sure. And probably, probably five. I, the math I did was you assume a 4% safe withdrawal rate and you know, five to 10 million gives you 200 to 400,000 a year without ever touching the principal. What did you want to be when you were a kid? A pirate. <laughs> That's awesome. I was a pirate for Halloween like seven years in a row. I thought it was so cool. <laughs> how many hours a week do you work? Uh, depends how you define work. So I'd say like real, actual, I get stuff done and move stuff forward in my business work, 10 to 20 hours. Sitting at my computer, ostensibly doing work, 40 to 50 hours. Reading, talking, or thinking about work-related stuff in some way, you know, 80 hours. Would you consider sitting down and just reading a book that you're enjoying in the morning uh, work in that last category, that 80 hour category? Uh, I would. Yeah. Okay. What do you think about in the shower? Usually what I'm going to eat for dinner. Oh, so you're a night shower. I'm a night shower. Night I, shower. I go to the gym usually at the end, like maybe five o'clock and then I'll take a shower after that and then have dinner. So plan those meetings with Taylor six, seven o'clock. Yeah. <laughs> if there was one thing that was going to bring upon the fall of civilization in the next 25 years, what would it be? I went to the Berkshire Hathaway annual meeting this year. Someone gave me a, a ticket and he, his quote was uh, CNBC for chemical, nuclear, biological, or cyber warfare. That makes sense to me. If, probably one of those things. And if I, I had to bet, I would probably bet on biological or cyber, but that's based on basically no research or deep understanding of the issue. Let's say for the sake of argument, you can't write your blog anymore. You can't run your business anymore. Entrepreneurship is off limits, but you can work for any company in the world. You get to pick, pick that company and the position. Which company would you work for? I would love to work with Seth Godin. I really respect what he's doing. I really like what he's up to with his Alt-MBA program, which is kind of an self-described alternative entrepreneurial MBA. I would love to work with them. What do you spend most of your discretionary money on? And not necessarily like, hey, rent or food, but but stuff where you know it could be a hobby, it could be a vice, it could be a good vice. But what does you spend more money on than probably most other people in that category? I mean, definitely books. I spent, I had to get my books. I spent something like three grand on books last year. And consider, considering they're like 20 bucks a pop at most, that's just absurd. So books are a big expense for me and travel is also my other big discretionary expense. If you could live anywhere in the world with costs not being an issue. So uh, someone else was, was footing the bill for your, your housing, uh, your food, and you could transplant all of your friends and family. Where would you live? Vietnam. I lived in Vietnam for a year. I really loved it. I love the culture. I love the energy. I love the food. I like Southeast Asia a lot. I think it's a really cool area, but it's just very isolated from the US. And specifically in Saigon? 
Yeah. And that, I would get like a, just a huge, awesome penthouse in downtown Saigon. <laughs> nice. What's one of the most generous things someone has done for you? So the first thing that came to mind was uh, my parents giving birth to me. I think that was just in terms of order of magnitude. That was pretty big. If that doesn't count, I would say when I launched my book last year, a number of people, including yourself, were super supportive. And that was a very, I was very surprised at how much, how generous people were and how much support I got there. And it made a big difference in terms of the success of the book. So this last question, I have to uh, give credit to our, our mutual friends at Cantor. It's his. So if he asks it to you as well, you should accuse him of uh, stealing it from me because that would be really funny. Okay. But let's assume you're, you're facing jail time and try to look at it less as a ethical issues aside, you know, not worrying about like, you know, your honor or things like that, but just as a pure cost benefit analysis, you can either flee to another country and serve no time in jail at all. You know, you won't get caught and you can bring your family and your friends but you give up all of your assets and you can never return to the US. Or if you stay and you serve your term, you can just go back to life as normal, but you, of course you have to stay in jail. How much time would you be willing to serve? So, you know, the, the maximum amount of time you'd be willing to serve to be able to, on the back end, remain in your country and retain all your assets. So I think for me, it really depends on the jail. If it was like, I think there's like these like kind of white collar, almost semi country club jails. It was one of those, (laughs) it was one of those jails, like, you know, three to five years, I get a lot of reading done, probably get in really good shape, go to the gym a lot. If it was like a a jail jail, like the HBO special San Quentin jails, half an hour, (laughs) nothing. I mean, I'm not, I, I wouldn't be surprised. I really like kind of expat lifestyle. I like living outside of the US. So I might leave the, I might flee the country and never come back even without the jail sentence. But I think that would just, that would be like, well, I guess it's time. I love it. Taylor, as always, great catching up with you. And if you're not following Taylor, make sure to check him out. His blog is taylorpearson.me. And he wrote the book recently, The End of Jobs, which is a really fascinating book on the future of the economy and entrepreneurship. We'll link up to all of those as well as his Medium profile and Twitter profile in the show notes. Taylor, it's always fun catching up. Thanks for coming on to talk. Thank you for having me on and thank you everyone for listening. It's been fun. Want to connect with and learn from other proven e-commerce entrepreneurs? Join us in the e-commerce fuel private community. It's our tight-knit vetted group for store owners with at least a quarter million dollars in annual sales. You can learn more and apply for membership at ecommercefuel.com. Thanks so much to our podcast producer, Laura Serena, for all of her hard work in making this show possible. And to you for tuning in. Thank you for listening. That'll do it for this week, but looking forward to seeing you again next Friday.